Good morning, everyone. How are we? All right. It's good to see you. We had uh, we had the privilege of being off last week. Took the family over to Kalispell, Montana. Just did a little getaway, and uh, and really enjoyed our time together. But I'm eager to get back into the Beatitudes with you this morning. So if you're new with us, if if you're just now gathering with us for the first time, we're studying through Matthew's Gospel. It's the first um, gospel about Jesus, the account of Jesus's life and his teaching in the New Testament. And we have a gift for you if you would like one. Back on this table here in the back, there are some Matthew. ESV scripture journals. What they have is the text of Matthew on the left-hand side, and then on the right-hand side, they have lined blank pages for you to just take notes, uh, mark them up, uh, follow along with the sermons, etc. So if you'd like one of those, it's our gift to you. No strings attached. Feel free to get up and, and grab one of those. There's some pens there at the table too. We're glad that you're with us. Now, why Matthew at this particular time in culture? I want to continue to just bring this before you every single week. We need this gospel and we need the Sermon on the Mount in our particular cultural moment. We need to hear from Jesus Christ. What we need more more than most anything or everything is to know that Jesus is with us, that he is alive, that he is present. And we need to know how he is with us, and we need to know what he wants of us in such a confusing cultural moment. We need to know what he wants of us. We need to know that he's with us. At the beginning of this year, we had a a little micro-series just called Abide. We were focused on Jesus' teaching out of a different gospel, the gospel of John, chapter 15, where Jesus is instructing uh, like 10 times in 11 verses. He uses the word abide, and he's commanding his disciples to abide with him, to remain with him, to attach themselves to him, to his teaching. This is, uh, this is how Matthew and how the Sermon on the Mount in particular serves our abiding. So we're not moving away from that teaching. We didn't just talk about it then and we forget about it and go on to something else, but Matthew is actually serving our abiding. Jesus, he brings us to clarity around the values of his kingdom. That's what he does for us. He brings us to clarity around the values of his kingdom. The kingdom of God, it it has a cultural code. And the cultural code of the kingdom of God is built on the character of Jesus himself. The code culturally for the kingdom of God is built on the character, the person of Jesus Christ himself. And so the whole point of the Christian life ultimately is that we would relent and put ourselves into God's care. We have functionally tried to remove, humanity has, ourselves outside of God's scope of rule and authority, and we suffer much outside of the scope of his rules. We rebel against him. All kinds of chaos breaks forward. But the Christian life, the point of the Christian life is to relent and to put ourselves into God's care, entrusting him to transform us and to shape us, to embody the particular qualities and character of his son, who is our king. And there's a purpose behind that, that our joy would rise up, that our joy would be full, and that the the glory of God, the wonder of God, the person of God would be known and seen and valued through the texture and the flavor of our lives and our reliance upon him. So that's how, that's why we're in Matthew. That's how it serves our abiding. But also in the Beatitudes, these nine blessings at the very beginning of Matthew chapter five, 
Um, we've learned a few things so far. We've learned that this Sermon on the Mount is less a code of ethics or a to-do list for us to perform in order to be accepted by God, and it's more a description of those who already occupy and thrive in the kingdom of God. The things that the Beatitudes are describing are already present in the people of God and are continuing to grow in the people of God. So true citizens of God's kingdom are embodying and sharing every single quality that you see in the Beatitudes, poor in spirit, mourning, meekness, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We're at various degrees and at points in our life, but every single one of those in the, in the life of a follower of Jesus is already there in the bud. And God is going to continue to bring it forward and to make it flower in our lives. So we saw at the very beginning in, in 5 uh, verse 3, it'll be up on the screen, blessed are the poor in spirit. This is how Jesus opens. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit are those who see and embrace their need of God. That's what it means to be poor in spirit in a sentence. Now, to be poor in spirit is opposite of being proud in spirit. The poor in spirit are the truly repentant ones. As they see, we see our spiritual bankruptcy and we respond in humility toward God rather than in pride. Rather than saying, no, 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 I don't need you. I'll take care of myself. We respond in need. We respond in weakness. We say, help, essentially. I prayed a prayer like that earlier this week uh, for a friend. It was about 10 helps. It was 10 words. And that was like all I had. That's a picture in some ways of what it looks like to be poor in spirit. I don't have anything to bring. I need you to intervene. The poor in spirit are those who God reaches down to. Lifts up their chins. Looks them straight in the eyes with care blesses them and assures them that they are the people of his everlasting kingdom. That's the God we serve. Blessed are those who mourn, Matthew 5, 4, for they will be comforted. The blessed ones are those who grieve for many reasons. You don't have to qualify your grief. You're grieving because of things done to you. You're grieving because of things you've done. You're grieving because of the broken things in the world. You're grieving for whatever reason it may be, and you need comfort. And so last week, Trevor took us in uh, to this, this beatitude in 5.4, and he said, God shows the mourners his heart. The Father shares his heart with mourners and personally gives comfort so that we would come to know and love his heart. So that's where we've been so far. Now we come to see another quality in the already blessed people of God. It's a quality called meekness. Meekness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land or the earth. The meek are those who don't throw their weight around, but, but rely on God to give them their due. That's a one-sentence definition of who the meek are. They're those who don't throw their weight around, but they rely and trust themselves to God to give them their due. The meek could try to seize power by force because maybe they have the power, they possess the strength that makes something like that possible, and yet they stay their hand. They wait on God to give them their due. So here's where we're going to go this morning. I'm going to give you a little bit of a roadmap. We're going to look at meekness in, in three, through three different lenses. We're going to look at meekness through its opposite, 
We're going to look at meekness through its essence, and then we're going to look at the blessing of meekness. So to say it another way, we're going to look at what meekness isn't to help us define what it is, and then to help us see why it's good, why it's something that we can and should long for. Uh, meekness, it's an out-of-fashion word. Like, we, we, don't, we, just, we don't use it in our culture very much. We certainly don't really um, value it as a culture if we do know what it means. It comes from a Greek word, and the, the Greek word is praus, which can be translated also, it can be translated humble, or the same word for meek can be translated gentle. So meek, in essence, means to live with humility, and also to live with gentleness. Now, I know um, guys, especially, like look at me, I, I, I have, uh, I've just somewhat defined meekness by humility and by gentleness. And so I think it's a temptation for men especially, but not just for men, for women too, to begin to kind of put that in a box and feel a bit of, uh, of discord or dissonance within you because you don't necessar- you're not necessarily drawn to meekness, maybe because it feels weak. You're not naturally humble. You're not naturally a gentle person. You don't even really think about those things on any given day. American men, uh, I, I think the men of the world over, and women too, but I think men are kind of a leading edge of this. Um, men are largely, and American men I can speak to because I am one, um, are largely drawn to power and we're largely drawn to strength. Like those are the kinds of things that fire us up. So we're drawn to, like North Idaho men, we're drawn to guns, we're drawn to camo, we're drawn to the woods, we're drawn to power, we're drawn to vehicles, we're drawn to things that make us in some ways feel a bit small. And humility and gentleness don't make us feel small. Now, I like guns, I like camo, I like the woods, I like those things as well. But Jesus, what he's doing is he's saying, blessed are the meek, is he's challenging us with this. To be gentle is not to be weak. To be a gentle person who values gentleness, you may have great strength, but you have a value of gentleness, and to live with humility, not thinking of your, not being self-obsessed, is a good quality. To be humble is not to be a doormat. To be meek is not to lack strength. It's not to lack vitality. It's not to lack resilience. To be meek is to rely on God to give you your due. That's what it means to be meek. I'll say it a different way. To be meek is to look to God before you look to you. A particular quality of meekness is a dependence of putting ourselves into God's care. And so what Jesus is doing as he's saying, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the land or they will inherit the earth is he's, he's actually lifting a blessing right out of the Old Testament, out of a Psalm, uh, Psalm 37 verses 10 and 11. It says this, and you can see kind of, you, you can see why meekness is a value here. Um, he's comforting, uh, the, the psalmist here is comforting the people who he is writing to because they have a problem. They're looking out and they're seeing evil. And he comforts them by saying, in just a little while, don't worry about it, the wicked will be no more. 
though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. In other words, wait on God. And then there's a flip side to this. There's a promise. But the meek shall inherit the land. This is speaking of a specific land as the psalmist is writing this, the promised land, the land of Canaan. And they will delight themselves in abundant peace. The peace isn't going to come from their own hands. They're going to inherit the land from someone else. And what the psalmist here is insinuating is they're going to inherit it from God himself. Now, Jesus says it's the meek. Back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, or verse 5, rather. Jesus says it's the meek, not the proud, who will inherit the land that God has reserved for them. You, you, you might, uh, this might sound familiar. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's a, a, a particular value of God and his kingdom. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look specifically at the opposite of meekness. I think the opposite of, when we look at the opposite of something, it can really help us understand what that something we're trying to define is. <clears throat> the opposite of meekness. The proud, the impatient, the discontent, the aggressive. I could probably go on. Those who are uh, pushy. It seems in our world, those who actually inherit the earth, like they hold control of the earth right now at this very moment, are the aggressive and the assertive. They're the ones who push, the ones obsessed with getting their due. But remember, recall Psalm 37, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more and you, the meek, will inherit the earth. Do you, do you struggle legitimately with aggressiveness, impatience, a, a, a sense of discontentedness? Are you a pushy type? chomping at the bit, your way or the highway, proud. Like, I live in this constant tension of pushing and pulling and trying to make things happen. I personally live in this constant tension of getting my own way. And sometimes, I was thinking about it this morning and last night, like, I can't even tell the difference of one from the other. Like, I want God's will, and I want my way, and I don't know if my way is God's will, and I'm just a mess inside because I can't really define in a given moment which is which, with the kind of clarity that I would want in that moment. And I struggle, and I'm, I'm guessing that your experience is similar. I struggle on a daily, hourly, and I'm not, like, this is not hyperbole. This is real-time look into my life. I struggle daily, regularly, to entrust myself to the Lord's care. Like, I'm a forgetter. I'm a dismisser. I push him away. I disregard him. I get set on the things that I want and I just drive at them relentlessly. So often I'm just lost in my fleshy perspective and my, my, my own fleshy drive. And I'm just like, as I'm writing this message, I'm just thinking to myself and I write this prayer in my notes, Jesus, give me a heart that's willing to wait on you because I'm not willing on a regular, like daily basis. I struggle. 
Meekness, the opposite of meekness, as I've defined it kind of easily, is like the proud, the impatient, the discontent, the aggressive. But um, it's also not, meekness is also not the proud who are internally squishy and cowardly. Those who seem laid back to us and don't make waves. Like, it's easy to think of pride as only manifesting itself through pushiness and aggressiveness. I think that's just like the easy low-hanging fruit to define and to think of pride. But to be proud is to think of oneself more highly or more frequently than is healthy. To be proud is to think of oneself more highly, more frequently than is healthy. Pride isn't just present in a person who is always, or, or, I'll say it different. Pride is just as present in a person who is always down on themselves as it is in the person who is all about themselves. Pride is just as present in Eeyore. Can't find my tail, right? Like, as it is in the person who is just assertive and trying to get their way. For example, if, if you or I refuse, um, if, if we refuse to ask for help because we don't want to be a burden to other people, that is actually textbook pride. If I refuse to go to a helping friend, a safe friend, because I don't want to burden them with my problems, that's textbook pride. I'm telling myself this story that my problems are too big for another person to carry. When in fact, if I actually went to my safe friend, went to, my, went to this person who I want internally to go to for help, if, if I didn't go to them and I told them that I didn't go to them for that reason, they would be mad at me for not coming to them at all. But instead, what I say in those moments is that I know better than they do, so I don't come. Textbook pride. It just doesn't look aggressive but it's still inward focused. Pride is the great characteristic of Satan. It's self-exaltation at its root, making too much of oneself. This mantra that it's my way or the highway. Husbands, is this how you operate in the home? You pushy? Pushing your way around? Wives, is this how you operate in the home? Your way or the highway? A refusal to listen a refusal to be reasonable. In those moments, the characteristic that's coming forward most clearly is one of Satan, not one of your Lord. My Lord, our Lord. I'm doing this as much as you are, for the record. This happens in our home. And the Spirit of God calls us to repent. And it's not a one-time thing but it's a regular thing because it consistently rears its head. Meekness. We've looked at its opposite. Now let's look at its essence. Meekness, humility, gentleness. It's the essence of Jesus Christ himself. If you want the perfect example of meekness in play, in flesh, in the world, living among us, it's Jesus of Nazareth. We often uh, sing a song, and the song is, In Christ Alone. And in the song, In Christ Alone, the, the, one of the verses says, In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, 
my strength and my song or my anthem, the, 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 the theme that kind of um, hangs over my life. And then another verse says, what heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. This song is showing us this kind of dual but unified nature of Jesus where he's strong and our comforter. His strength is brought under perfect control. He's strong and gentle. Only once in all of the Gospels does Jesus let us into what his heart is actually like. Did you know that? There's only once in all of the Gospels that Jesus tells his followers what's going on in his interiority, what's going on inside of him. You probably have heard it. We've actually read it a few times the last few weeks. Matthew 11, 28 and 29, or 28 through 30. Jesus will say to his disciples, to all who uh, are, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Do you know what the word for gentle is there? It's meek. For I am meek and I'm lowly in heart. You will find rest, he says, as you come to me. You'll find rest for your souls. And he, he'll go on to say, my yoke or my, my teaching and my way of life is easy and my burden is light. To be meek. This is Jesus speaking about himself. Come to me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. To be meek is to possess strength while living with poise and living with composure. We see that in Jesus, in this, that hymn where he's our strength and our comforter. He's possessing strength, living with poise and, cons- and composure. Think of Jesus in the moments when he's being prov- provoked by the Pharisees or in the moments where he's under trial by a Roman prefect who's about to sentence him to death on a cross. Think about Jesus's demeanor in those moments. The gospels tell us what Jesus was like, what he said, what he did. The gospel writers lead us right into that. There's only one, one party in those interactions, those confrontations with Jesus struggling with power, those who didn't really have it, but felt that they must have it. They must seize control through killing and executing another person, the son of God, But what we see in Jesus is that he entrusted himself to his father perfectly and he peacefully resisted evil men. That's what he did in those moments. He entrusted himself to his father who he knew cared for him and would oversee the events of his life and his future. And then he peacefully resisted evil men. Men who wanted to kill him in the moment men who were reviling him and cursing him and trying to trap him and ostracize him in the moment. Now think about this. He was doing what was right. He's entrusting himself to his father and he's peacefully resisting evil men. He's doing the will of God. And he suffered for it. He suffered for that. He suffered unjustly. What was done to him was injustice. So the one who created justice, in whom justice, um, in, in, in whom um, his, in his mind, justice originated, 
the one who created justice and loves justice, the son of God, became a victim of injustice. He had an apostle uh, who was regularly at the front of the bunch because he didn't exhibit meekness, at least early on, a guy named Peter. And Peter would write a letter later in his life to a struggling, exiled, suffering, persecuted church. Uh, and, and he would say, he would, he would put forward this example of Jesus and he would, he would describe Jesus's extremely tempting moments. And this is what Peter would write. And, and the first person, uh, at least in the text that I'm gonna put on the screen here in just a moment, the first person that Peter is addressing are servants, household servants, those who are low enough that they're having to do another's bidding or betting, whatever it might be. Servants, Peter writes, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and meek, gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Do you read that? This is a gracious thing when mindful of God, you and I, endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. And then he goes on to argue here, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Like you had it coming. That's not any credit to you. But when you do good, when you do what's right, when you do the will of God and you suffer for it and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Now this is a charge to the people of God. This is what we have been called to because Christ also suffered for you, doing what? Leaving us an example so that we might follow in his steps. So the example that Jesus left us, the way that he lived, he lived intentionally so that we would see it and so that we would have a pattern to look to and a pattern to follow as we falter. So he's put his spirit in us. He's put his example before us. He's put his word in front of us. And now we have an example to follow in his steps. And then Peter says this about the character of Jesus. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. He wasn't looking for an untrue way out of his predicament. When he was reviled, he didn't respond in kind. He did not revile in return. When Jesus suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself entrusting, there's the language. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, who will sort all of this out. This is like, this is real. We're living in a cultural moment where we are regularly tempted to rise up and take the power. Doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on, period. Doesn't even matter if you're trying to thread the middle. The one with real power here was not provoked. He was too focused on his father's glory and the good of those he was serving to be concerned with his own glory. The glory of Jesus' father was his goal, so his strength was under his control. He wasn't concerned with getting it now. 
He was concerned with the glory of his father. Have you ever seen, um, this is just a peek into one of the things I find interesting and fascinating. Have you ever seen um, videos of UFC fighters when they get like accosted by a drunk person like on the street and somebody films it? Have you ever seen any of these videos? They're very entertaining. One of the reasons that I find them entertaining is because these guys are like, they're trained in the art of combat, hand to hand. They can subdue fools in an instant and they get into a cage with another person and they go toe to toe. There's all kinds of consent there. If you don't like it, fine. I like it. it. It is what it is. But when these guys are on the street and somebody comes up to them and is just running their mouth at them, oftentimes insulting and abusing them verbally, and sometimes attacking them, you see this picture of strength under control in a moment. There's a guy, he's a kind of a loudmouth New Yorker. His name is Matt Sarah. Years ago, he's in a restaurant and a person started attacking him. And he is a, he's a black belt several times over in jujitsu and just wraps this guy up, takes him to the ground gently, sits on top of him while the guy's like slapping at him. And he's just pushing his hands away skillfully until the police arrive. He's not mad. He's smiling, Sarah is, the whole time. Like he's, he's kind of, he's having a good time. But the point is, is that he subdued this guy and continued to be gentle. He continued to take abuse. I think in some ways, though imperfect, it's an illustration of Christ's heart, actually. Instead of destroying, he subdues and saves his people. Jesus saves us not just from something, but he also saves us for something. He saves his people from wrath that we deserve for our injustice. And he saves us for blessing. And so this is where we come to the blessing of meekness. My final point here. There is blessing of meekness. There's far more than I could tell in a sermon. But one, um, it's good to know that the, the quality of meekness is something that God develops in his people. Some of us are probably born more inclined to it in a worldly sense, but um, God glorifying meekness is something that he just, he works out supernaturally in his people. This is his work. True God glorifying meekness is something that God does in his people. Second, a blessing of meekness is also land, acreage in the Old Testament. Um, a primary blessing from, his God, from God to his people was the promised land. It was the land of Canaan. It, it, God described this as a blessed place. It was flowing with milk and honey. That's a funny way of describing land, but it, what it means is it was, it was a land that was good for livestock and good to produce food. It was a land where peace could be had, not wilderness, but a place to cultivate. To cultivate. Um, In the New Testament, uh, the kingdom of God expands our view of his kingdom beyond land. What the kingdom of God is, is God's rule over the hearts of his people. We've looked at this previously. Whenever the Bible is talking about the kingdom of God, it's speaking particularly of his rule in the hearts of men and women. And so wherever his people go, they go into those lands. And so his people are not constrained to a land, but now in the new covenant age, his people are scattered across the entire globe. So in the New Testament, the kingdom of God, it's not tied to land and it's not tied to acreage, but it actually encompasses all places. 
all things. The kingdom of God belongs to the poor in spirit. And a person who is poor in spirit is also growing in meekness. And as we entrust ourselves to God, we find increasingly, as we, as, we, as we walk with him and live with him over the years of our life, we recognize that we are already in possession of all we could ever need. That's what we begin to realize as we live with God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it like this. He says, a person who is truly meek is a person who is satisfied, a person who is already content. Content with what? Though in this life we may have nothing, we already have all. As the Spirit of God develops meekness in us, we're learning the secret of contentment. As Paul would write at the end of this letter to a Philippian, to a church in Philippi, um, he would say to them, I'm learning how to live with much and how to live with nothing. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so like Paul, we're learning how to live with much and how to live with little, and we're beginning to recognize that we can do all things. We can do whatever he asks of us because of his strength within us. And so in, in a sense, the meek come to see how, according to Paul again, writing to a Roman church, the spirit himself, the spirit of God is bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. <clears throat> and we're coming to understand that if we're children of God, according to Romans 8, 16 and 17, then we're heirs. Heirs with God and heirs of Christ. The words he uses are fellow heirs with Christ. What this means is that everything that God has and owns, he is going to be continually through eternity just giving us, opening up to us. If we have our creator God, my point is that we have all. If we have the giver, we have all of the gifts too. And we recognize that the gifts are good and wonderful, but the gifts point us to the heart of the giver. They point us to appreciate the giver. They point us to worship the giver, not the gifts. There's also a future tense blessing here in this blessing that the meek will inherit the earth. At the last day, the Bible teaches that we will, we will rule with Christ. There's a future tense application here. Paul says to the church members in Corinth, do you not know that the saints will judge the earth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's coming to the cross. He's, it's getting close. He's teaching them. And he says this to his disciples, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. So he's speaking to these 12 apostles and he's telling these 12 apostles of their specific work of ruling in the new kingdom. He's saying that these apostles will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And then Jesus will go on to say, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. That's another way of saying that those who push their way to the front of the line will get the back of the line and those who entrust themselves to God will find themselves in the front of the line. Does that make sense? 
A final quote here, and then I'll land. John Piper, um, he, this is a quote that I think is really helpful here on meekness as we just kind of button some of this up. The quietness, he says, and openness and vulnerability of meekness is very beautiful. And let's be honest, it's very painful too. It goes against all we are by our sinful nature. Meekness requires supernatural help. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you trust him and commit your way to him and wait patiently for him, God has already begun to help you. That's already what's happening in your life as you're a follower of Jesus. He's already helping you. But then Piper says he will help you even more. There's promise here that he really truly is God with us. And the primary way that he will help you is to, to assure your heart that you are a fellow heir of Jesus Christ and that the world and everything in it is yours. The meek inherit the earth. We see the wicked, Psalm 37, but in his place, you'll find him no more. Wait, the meek will inherit the earth. So here's kind of how it comes home to us in application. As we, um, it, it, meekness isn't something that we just like headlong pursue. Like, I'm, I wanna be meek. I'm gonna be humble. I'm gonna be the most humble person I know. Like, it, does, it doesn't really work that way. Meekness is a supernatural gift, but what the Spirit of God does in us is he, cre- he, he helps us see and love that quality in Jesus Christ as we read about him and learn about him and see his ways. And as we come to see the way of Jesus and the way of meekness, this total strength under control, entrusting himself to the Father to give him his due, we, we come to value it. And then the Spirit of God supernaturally begins to just work this through his people. And it becomes a value that his people begin to see and celebrate in other people. And as you see it and value it and celebrate it in Jesus, and as you begin to see it and value it and celebrate it and feel it in other people, what strangely comes home to us is that we begin to live out of it ourselves. And we begin to recognize that this too has become our value. We find that we are thinking of ourselves less. We're not necessarily thinking less of ourselves. We're thinking of ourselves less. We're not, humility is not Eeyore. Humility is a person who is focused on the glory of God and the good of other people. Pride begins to lose its grip, and before you know it, meekness is replacing our pride, and it's the Spirit of God who's doing it in us. Praise his name. The meek will inherit the earth. Wait for him. Entrust yourself to him. He will give you your due. Pray with me. Father, um, this is hard teaching. It's not necessarily hard to understand. Sometimes it's hard to want. It's hard to know what to do with it. So by your strength, would you, uh, would you just continue to direct us to you in dependence? That we would be a dependent people on you. We would hunger for your word. That we would serve and love one another. That we would love and increasingly value the way of Jesus. And that strangely, through patience and a willingness to endure, 
what the world doesn't understand. Your glory is made known. And we're filled with a kind of joy that we didn't expect. And we love it. Would you do this in us? In Jesus' name, amen.